Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 43, Questions on Doctrine, Part 7. Last time, we talked about M.L. Andreasen's initial protest in October 1957 after the publishing of Questions on Doctrine and how the Great Dane thought the book undermined Adventist beliefs. Now, he followed this up with a series of essays he called The Atonement, The Atonement 1, The Atonement 2, The Atonement 3, and so forth. And a number of Adventist clergy and laypeople supported Andreasen in his protest, but he never was able to build enough support to seriously challenge the church and force a change in questions on doctrine. Church leaders responded, of course. Peace talks failed, and in 1958... Andreasen went underground to prepare his final assault. We begin our last chapter of our story about questions and doctrine in the city of Cleveland, Ohio, where delegates were gathering at the public auditorium across the street from City Hall. Cleveland was born great, the review declared. Those of us from Ohio are still scratching our heads about that one. But in the exhibit hall, you could see a scale model of the giant Skodsborg Sanitarium perched outside of Copenhagen. And there was just so many cool things to see in the exhibit hall. You could touch baskets that were hand-woven from West Africa, or what one reporter tastefully called, quote, hideous devil masks, end quote, from South America. I'm sure that will age well. General conference sessions were many things, and one of those things is political. It's kind of like a wedding. The purpose of the wedding is to witness and celebrate a marriage. But when you start talking about who is sitting next to whom and who gets invited and who isn't going to be invited, well, you're venturing into some social politics. So while GC President Ruben Figure and ML Andreasen negotiated a meeting back in February, the GC committee met to invite what they called veteran workers as delegates to the upcoming session. Often these were retired pastors or administrators, and inviting them as delegates and, of course, paying their expenses was a way of showing respect and appreciation for their years of service because, hey, it's a lot of sacrifice to work for the church. Well, in 1958, this list included people like George McCready Price, Mead McGuire, Milton E. Kern, Charles Longacre, who was a veteran of 1888 and one of the the few remaining Adventists in the 1950s who clung on to the view that, as he put it, Christ is not God in his own right. Well, these all received invitations. Even though one of them, of course, is a blatant anti-Trinitarian. But you know who didn't receive an invitation? The Great Dane, M.L. Andreasen. William B. Oakes, a GC vice president, opened with a devotional he titled The Blessedness of Unity. This wasn't necessarily aimed at Andreasen because church leaders habitually took up the themes of unity or evangelism or the importance of holding on until Jesus returns at GC sessions. But it certainly would have felt like it was aimed at him 
if you knew what was going on. Oak said, quote, The spirit of love will not permit discord to come among God's people. The spirit of love unites. Hatred separates. Love forgives and forgets. Hatred carries a grudge. Love builds. Hatred tears down. End quote. On and on and on. You get the idea. Now, when it came to the topic of doctrinal unity, Oaks insisted, quote, On non-essentials, we must be charitable. On these, silence is eloquence. God does not want us to delve into matters upon which he has been silent. He does not want us to waste our time on questions that are not essential for the perfecting of the faith. These do not unite, but separate, end quote. Now, this is a good point in our episode to remind ourselves that though we've been talking about QOD and Andreas in the last six episodes, there's always a lot more going on in the church, okay? Andreasen was probably never Figure's biggest problem, or at least not his biggest problem for very long. So it is very likely that Oakes also had other situations in mind when he gave this talk on unity, as there are always pockets of Seventh-day Adventists looking to make some mountains out of some molehills on one issue or another. Now, whatever situation Oakes had in mind, it seems that Andreasen felt this message was aimed at him. At least, his biographer interpreted it that way. Sabbath morning would make it very clear that Andreasen was on the mind of the General Conference leadership because Reuben Figure took to the pulpit and declared that Christ's, quote, atoning sacrifice on Calvary, the final phase of his atoning ministry now going on in the heavenly sanctuary, must by word and voice be clearly proclaimed to the world. The sacrifice and ministry of our Lord and Savior have not been too clearly understood, even by our own people. End quote. Who was uh, running around with a series called The Atonement, claiming that the church had lost its way and the doctrine of the atonement? Yeah, Andreasen wouldn't have to be an egoist or paranoid to realize that they're talking about him. Now, H.M.S. Richards got his turn at the pulpit that night, saying that all of these theories of the atonement didn't matter. What matters is that people accept that Jesus died for them. Another GC man, H.L. Rudy, got up the next morning and declared, quote, a complete and fully acceptable atoning sacrifice was made on the cross, but the work of applying the merits of his shed blood needed to be carried forward in heaven, end quote. Rudy was here blending language from Leroy Froome, and Andreasen, as if he was asking, are we all on the same page here? What in the world are we arguing about? Well, it's clear enough that the GC president, vice presidents, and friends all understood the assignment during their sermons. Make sure the world church is clear about where we stand on the atonement issue. We are not retreating from our official position. We are proclaiming it loud and clear contrary to what <clears throat> some people may be saying. During this time, Andreasen bided his time. In February 1959, about eight months after the GC session, the Great Dane emerged again to issue a new six-part series of essays he called Letters to the Churches. This is a way in which Adventist history can mess with your head because when I saw a popular evangelical preacher named Francis Chan, and he, when he wrote a book a few years ago called Letters to the Church, well, 
I was like, man, Andreasen's still getting around. <laughs> Turns out, yeah, Francis Chan wasn't writing about QOD and probably had no idea who Andreasen is. But, you know, sometimes you hear these things and it, it just, yeah, that's the lens through which you see other things. Anyways, back to our regularly scheduled program. Andreasen's letters to the churches were largely repackaged from his series of essays on the atonement. The first essay tackled a new objection Andreasen discovered. QOD wasn't just wrong about the atonement, it was also wrong about the nature of Christ. Specifically, Andreasen took issue with this line about Jesus. Quote, although born in the flesh, he was nevertheless God and was exempt from the inherited passions and pollutants that corrupt the natural descendants of Adam. End quote. The key word for Andreas in there was exempt. Jesus was exempt from the inherited passions and pollutants that the natural descendants of Adam deal with. Yes, I just ended a sentence with a preposition, and you still understood me, and nobody died. Anyway, we're really in the quantum realm of theology here, where we should discuss what the QOD authors mean by words like exempt, and what they mean by inherited, and what they mean by passions, and what they mean by pollutants. You can easily get to a point where the interpreter has probably put more thought into the meaning of these words than the authors did. Well, the context clears some of this up. The author, or authors, write that Jesus neither committed acts of sin nor had a sinful nature. Well, what is a sinful nature exactly, right? We can keep going with this. What are we talking about here? Game. The authors seem to define that phrase with this line, quote, There was nothing in him that responded to the evil one, end quote. Okay. A curious theologian might not be satisfied that every idea in this paragraph has been perfectly explained, but I would imagine for most people the range of meanings here was close enough to the truth, if not the truth itself. But not for Andreasen. In seeking to understand what the authors of QOD meant, using words like exempt and passions, Andreasen turned to a dictionary to define the terms which was, by the way, a time-honored Adventist tradition. I mean, whenever you have some theological controversy going out in the review, it is uh, very common to see somebody saying, well, what does Webster say? You know, what does this dictionary say? Let's find out what they mean by this. So, Andreasen cracked open Webster's dictionary and saw that it defined passion as referring to any strong emotions. Ah, Andreasen pounced, quote, to take these emotions away from a man, to exempt him from all temptation, results in a creature less than the man, a kind of no man, a shadow man, a non-entity, end quote. This is one way to interpret what the authors of QOD meant when they wrote that Jesus was exempt from inherited passions, but it is by no means the most likely or logical meaning. The authors of QOD, whatever they meant, were certainly not arguing that Jesus was free from any human emotion or that he couldn't be tempted. As George Knight points out, these authors were borrowing language from Ellen White, who noted that Christ, quote, is a brother in our infirmities, but not possessing like passions, end quote. There's that word passions again. By this, Ellen and the authors of QOD likely meant some kind of hunger for sin. That is, that Jesus could be tempted to sin and he could commit sin, but he had no natural desire to sin, as you and I do. Now, it seems clear that Andreasen had taken 
on what we might call a hermeneutic of suspicion, where when faced with a possible range of meanings, he took the most skeptical option. A dictionary tells you about the range of meanings a word can have. It doesn't tell you what the author meant in using that word, does it? Andreasen would have been on more solid ground when it comes to Appendix B in Questions on Doctrine, which was a collection of Ellen White quotes on the nature of Christ. There we find a subheading that reads, Took Sinless Human Nature. And as George Knight has pointed out, Ellen White was explicit that he, quote, took upon himself fallen, suffering human nature, degraded and defiled by sin, end quote. So of all the Ellen White statements in this chapter, this one that I just quoted was conveniently left out, giving the reader a false impression about what Ellen White actually believed. Now, didn't the authors of QED realize that Avenists who were familiar with Ellen White would find this headline deeply misleading? The answer, if you ask George Knight, is that QED wasn't written for Avenists, it was written for evangelicals, and specifically Martin and Barnhouse, two Calvinists who, as Knight explains, equated Christ having sinful nature with Christ being a sinner. The real Avenist position was more nuanced, but apparently Froome and company felt they couldn't adequately explain that nuance to Martin and Barnhouse with their Calvinist worldview, so apparently Froome and company decided to mislead them on this part by putting a deceptively titled headline up there and then conveniently leaving out any Ellen White quotes that would have contradicted it. Well, why did the nature of Christ matter so much to Andreasen? Because if Jesus had a fallen nature, if he had to endure temptation with the same liabilities and handicap that you and I have, and if he overcame sin with that fallen nature, then you and I can overcome sin too. And that means the last generation of humans before Jesus returns can be a people who, by faith, can also overcome sin in their own lives, thus proving to the universe that human beings can, with God's help, keep God's law. Now, this is important, as Andreasen puts it, quote, Satan's contention has always been that God is unjust in requiring men to keep the law and doubly unjust in punishing them for not doing what cannot be done and what no one has ever done. His claim is that God ought at least to make a demonstration to show that it can be done and done under the same conditions to which men are subject. End quote. Therefore, there must be some humans who follow the example of Jesus and overcome sin in order to prove to the universe that God is just. This is the heart of Andreasen's last generation theology. So it is critically critically important that Jesus had no special advantages over us. He had to have the same fallen natures that we have, yet without committing sin. He couldn't use his divinity to his own advantage. Jesus had to show us how to defeat sin, as well as bearing its penalty. Or, as Andreasen put it in his book on the sanctuary, quote, Through the last generation of saints, God stands finally vindicated. Through them, he defeats Satan and wins his case. They form a vital part of the plan of God. End quote. To Andreasen, this last generation theology was a key part of Adventism. And Knight argues that a majority of Adventists had come to accept it in some form by the 1940s and 1950s. 
Andreasen didn't invent this out of thin air, of course, he's building on the work of our friends Ella J. Wagner and Alonzo T. Jones in the 1890s, but aside from this new offensive on the nature of Christ, Andreasen largely repeated his old claims from his Atonement series. The authors of QOD were destroying Ellen White, they were corrupting Adventist theology on the Atonement, they were compromising on the Mark of the Beast, compromising here, compromising there, and so on. But this nature of Christ thing, this was new. Why then did Andreasen go underground for the better part of a year before re-emerging with new essays? And why were the vast majority of these new essays, these letters to the churches, pretty much the same as his previous ones? The answer, I think, lies with A.L. Hudson. Hudson was a local elder, an Adventist printer in Oregon, and something of a professional agitator in the church. After 1888 re-examined, had fallen into his hands sometime around 1955, Hudson had taken up with Wheeland and Short's cause by insisting that all letters and reports surrounding that controversy be made available so that Wheeland and Short's claims can be considered by church members, or at least a wider circle of church leaders. And when this failed, Hudson published A Warning and Its Reception, which contained a copy of 1888 Reexamined, plus the three general conference reports, plus Wheeland and Short's response. When Hudson discovered Andreasen, well, he knew he had another cause to promote. Hudson actually protested QOD's treatment on the nature of Christ months before Andreasen, but he was happy to join forces with Andreasen and print the Great Dane's letters to the churches. But he also did much more, he called Donald Gray Barnhouse. Determined to get to the bottom of this himself with what happened at the Adventist Evangelical Conference, with whether the church members had been told the truth about what happened by church leaders, he was going to go straight to the horse himself. No offense, Donald. So he picked up the phone on May 16th, 1958, to figure out who was telling the truth. In the transcript of this call, which Hudson provided, okay, so take that for what it's worth, Barnhouse was clearly annoyed by all the drama surrounding his acceptance of Adventists as fellow Christians. He had been attacked constantly for it. We've talked about that. His magazine had almost died, and he undoubtedly felt like he had been misrepresented as some closet Adventist. This, I think, is the context for Barnhouse's comment that, quote, all I'm saying is that Adventists are Christians. I still think their doctrines are about the screwiest of any group of Christians in the world. I believe this beyond any question. In fact, the doctrine of the investigative judgment is the most blatant, face-saving proposition that ever existed to cover up the debacle of the failure of Christ to come in 1844, as they said. When the two men walked through the cornfield and suddenly one of them struck his head and said, Why, Christ did come! Why, this is ridiculous, asinine nonsense! End quote. Okay, well, that's not exactly how all that 1844 stuff happened, but sure, Donald, you get the idea about how Donald Gray Barnhouse feels about these things. And, and don't you worry, because Barnhouse, he's just getting warmed up. Quote, A hundred years ago, the Adventists were practically all illiterates, and now they are becoming educated, and they know that their doctrines will not hold the light of exegesis. End quote. Oh. Illiterates. Okay. Okay. Let's just move on. Barnhouse added that God hates the Sabbath. Later on, he said he hated the Sabbath too, 
and he said that Adventism was founded on a lie. He alleged that the General Conference had a secret Ellen White book that Adventists had never seen, and if they did, it would ruin their trust on her. And then, then, he interjected this gem, quote, I recognize clearly that Mrs. White very frequently wrote some very spiritual things, but God Almighty never spoke through a woman. Let's face it, you can't justify a woman preaching and usurping authority over a man. It can't be done. Seventh-day Adventists are immature Christians. I don't think there is any doubt of the fact that Seventh-day Adventists have tremendous immaturity. End quote. Okay, Barnhouse was clearly irritated, and he asked Hudson, Do you feel that you are the remnant church? Hudson said, I do. Well, Barnhouse snarled, If you believe that, then you are a megalomaniac. Hudson said, This is what all Adventists believe. Barnhouse told him that it wasn't, and so the conversation went. Barnhouse stayed consistent with what he had printed and insisted that Hudson represented the lunatic fringe of Adventism. What's clear from this conversation is that Barnhouse could be a jerk, but we already knew that. He was clearly getting older and crankier, and what's also clear is that this understanding between Froome, Anderson, and Reed with Barnhouse and Martin was built upon let's call them misunderstandings. It was a peace treaty built on understanding, maybe that's another way to put it, but not too much understanding. And all it took was one lay Adventist printer to call Barnhouse and expose that fact. Hudson told Barnhouse that church leaders in Washington weren't being completely forthright, and he wasn't completely wrong. This, of course, doesn't mean that questions on doctrine was some grand conspiracy to sell Adventism down the river. It doesn't mean it was this Omega apostasy that Ellen White had predicted. This was not an all-or-nothing situation. Some of what Andreasen and Hudson were saying was true. Much of it, depending on who you ask, was not, or at least it was a matter of opinion. Now, Hudson also lodged some kind of complaint on Andreasen's behalf with the church leadership, which he tried to tie to his protest about Wheeland and Short, and before long, by the way, he would take the hand of Robert Brinsmead, too. Eh, what can you say about the guy? Hudson was uh, like the J. Jonah Jameson of the Adventist Church in this day. Figur, as you might expect, was exasperated to find Andreasen renewing the attack, this time with Hudson, a known nuisance. R.R. Beats, Andreasen's conference president, suggested that the church invite Andreasen to write a book on the atonement and the church would publish it, so long as you just don't make reference to this beef with QOD. Beats hoped that this book project would, quote, keep him busy, end quote, for a while, and had the benefit, Julius Nam suggests, of allowing both sides to save face. Andreasen would get to publish his views on the atonement for all Adventists to read on a church press, church leaders would get to be seen as peacemakers. Yet, this too would fail. Andreasen's renewed campaign brought responses from people who had clearly and dearly wanted to stay out of it. But convinced at last that Andreasen was never going to stop, they joined the fray. Edward Heppenstall wrote and accused Andreasen of setting up a straw man by appealing to the dictionary to define the word passion. Hebenstahl also chided Andreasen for taking Barnhouse's bold claims as the truth by reminding Andreasen that Barnhouse has his own agenda too, buddy. And that, I think, is something that could be fairly said of Barnhouse's phone call with A.L. Hudson. There's a tendency with Hudson and Andreasen to assume that what Barnhouse says is true because 
If what Barnhouse says is true, then it must mean that our Avenus men are the ones lying and trying to change things. Andreasen and Hudson don't seem to consider that maybe Barnhouse might be wrong in the way that he characterized the meetings, most of which he didn't even attend, and he might be overselling things, you know? So Heppenstall said, quote, I tremble to think what can happen by such methods as this. No one is safe anymore. You can pick on the word from any talk or article, get your own definition, and proceed to indict all and every minister who may disagree with you. This is incredible, and I cannot believe that this is you, end quote. George McCready Price, in his 90th year, and one of the few people who was Andreasen Sr., also tried to put a leash on the Great Dane. Price criticized Andreasen for wanting a public hearing, or at least a tape of any meeting he had with church leaders. Price pointed out that when American and Soviet leaders met, they didn't demand recordings of the meeting. Price insinuated that what Andreasen really wanted was a stage. And if Andreasen got his stage, then every aggrieved person in the church would demand the same stage. But Price's most interesting comment was yet to come. Price, like many others, genuinely could not see much daylight between what Andreasen was saying and what QOD was saying. So Price wrote again, after reading some of Andreasen's letters to the churches, specifically the sixth one, and wrote, quote, your number six is just a rehash of your old argument that the present generation of Adventists do not pronounce shibboleth quite the same as you used to pronounce it two generations ago. Why should they? I thought this was a movement, not a status quo. If we as a people can't learn anything or change for the better with the passing of years and decades, I would feel uneasy. I have never thought that we had all truth or were already perfected. This book has advanced light. End quote. Ooh, the price is right, my friends. Harry Lowe, chair of the GC's Committee of Biblical Study and Research, wrote to Andreasen to address some of his earlier accusations, particularly that the Sabbath school department had cut a lesson on Revelation 13 and the Mark of the Beast in order to appease Martin and Barnhouse. Lowe said, this isn't true. It was cut out because church leaders didn't want to stoke anti-American sentiments in many parts of the world with a discussion on how America was the beast. So yeah, we didn't compromise with Martin and Barnhouse. We compromised with the politics overseas. Nah, I'm just giving a hard time. But these were all piecemeal attacks. A.V. Olson, chair of the Board of Trustees of the White Estate, was deputized by a GC committee with dismantling Andreasen's arguments more systematically. This he attempted in a 27-page paper, which spends a lot of time comparing Andreasen's statements to that of Ellen White, comparing them to QOD, even comparing them to previous statements Andreasen had made. There are clear instances here where what Andreasen wrote, let's say, in the 1940s was basically what QOD published in the 1950s, just using some different words. And in those instances, it wasn't QOD that had changed, but Andreasen. Just to give you one example, in Atonement number 4, Andreasen writes that, quote, In my many years of teaching, I have never, never heard of anyone even mentioning that Avenus taught or believed that atonement was made on the cross, end quote. Well, Olson says, let's compare that to what Andreasen wrote in his book, The Sanctuary Service, which was published in 1947, which reads, quote, It was Christ's atoning death that made possible our salvation, end quote. 
I've never heard any any Adventist say that atonement was made on the cross. Really? Because you yourself wrote about 10 years ago that it was Christ's atoning death that made possible our salvation. Apparently, not only had Andreas and Heard an Adventist teaching that atonement was made on the cross, eh, it had actually been Andreas and who said it. Olson's paper, though not officially adopted, was nevertheless sent to church leaders around the division as ammunition in dealing with Andreasen. It was an arms deal, with deniability baked in. Use this document to combat Andreasenism, but remember that we never officially approved it. Andreasen responded to Olson with a new letter he called a most dangerous heresy, but it added nothing new. It was merely a restatement of what Andreasen had been saying all along, and which many in the church had already addressed, as we've seen. In October 1960, Andreasen sent a new letter to Figure, which finally began to bring things to a head. In it, he demanded a trial, not for himself, but a trial of church leaders, where he, Andreasen, would serve as the prosecutor. <laughs> hey, whether you side with Andreasen in this or not, I mean that, that's the that's some that's some chutzpah, man. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, as you might imagine, Figueroa had had enough. He wouldn't be sitting in the docket to let Andreasen pepper him with questions anytime soon. So after three years, yeah, he was he's he's over. He wanted to suspend Andreasen's ministerial credentials at Autumn Council that year, but some on the council wanted to give Andreasen some more time. Okay. Then Walter Martin's long-awaited book, The Truth About Seventh-day Adventism, which was supposed to come out with Questions on Doctrine three years before, it was finally published, and Andreasen found things in there, surprise, surprise, that he felt were betrayals of Adventism. And so, on April 6, 1961, the General Conference Committee at last ran out of patience, and they voted to suspend the Great Dane's credentials. Quote, Whereas, to permit any minister to hold credentials with all that credentials imply, while continuing to engage in active controversy with the duly constituted authority in the church, can produce only increasing confusion in the minds of our people. Therefore, be it resolved that we hereby suspend M. L. Andreasen's credentials and that we ask him to return them to the General Conference. We take this action unanimously. We also take it with the deepest sorrow, for we are not unmindful of his long years of service. Our greatest desire is that we may be able to return to him his credentials. Andreasen had been retired for over 10 years at this point, so this suspension of his credentials wouldn't do much to impact his life. Andreasen had held these credentials for 60 years, and they showed that he was officially recognized as a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he had the freedom to preach wherever he pleased. To take that away at the end of his life was a blow, a terrible blow to him. He explained, quote, If some think that the loss of my credentials is by me considered a small matter, they are mistaken. The church is my life, and I love it, end quote. His biographer notes that two of his former students visited him that summer, and decided beforehand that we're not going to bring up this whole credential thing. That's going to be a touchy subject. Let's just not talk about it. We don't want to upset him. Well, as soon as he saw them, his biographer tells us he brought the issue up and tells them, quote, well, they've suspended my credentials, end quote. 
He began weeping. Quote, I've not left the church. I have no intention of leaving the church. End quote. As if he was anticipating what they might be wondering. You know, the church took away his credentials. Is Andreasen going to leave the church? And he let him know he's staying. We're told that he spent some time writing letters to God, though I'm not sure whatever happened to those. Losing his credentials broke his heart. But Andreasen was also angry. Shortly after being told that he was losing his credentials, Andreasen met with R.R. Beats, now president of the Pacific Union, and apparently threatened to release what he called damaging material to the press about the church. Andreasen toyed with the idea of suing the church for $100,000 for wrongful termination. And then it was Andreasen's turn to threaten, as when he wrote Figure, quote, I have it in my power to ruin you completely, end quote. Yet when Figure and Andreasen met face to face a month after losing his credentials, Andreasen assured Figure that he had stopped sending letters out and wanted his credentials returned. Figure assured Andreasen that if he stopped circulating these letters and publicly told others to not circulate them, then he could have his credentials back. Andreasen, however, demanded his credentials be returned before he stopped circulating. And once again, the chance for peace was scuttled. As usual, after failed peace talks, Andreasen renewed his efforts by protesting against what he called his secret trial that took his credentials away. He declared that he thought the trial, which was, as I said, a regular meeting of the General Conference Committee, was illegal, and Andreasen didn't recognize its legitimacy. Now, this was a rather strange claim, given that Andreasen did apparently return his credentials to the General Conference as ordered. Figure, again, offered Andreasen his credentials if Andreasen would give the assurance that he would not take up his pen again in the future. But Andreasen rebuffed this offer by again insisting that the church hadn't treated him fairly. He outlined how the church manual provided a process that should have been followed, and he wanted a trial where he could present witnesses. Figure reminded the Great Dane that this process in the church manual was for disfellowshipping people, not for removing their credentials. Figure tried to meet him more than halfway during this time, and he didn't insist that Andreasen recant what he believed, only that he stopped disseminating it. Andreasen insisted that he had been misunderstood. Yes, he had stopped circulating his material, but that was only because unnamed people had been copying his material and sending it places he didn't want it to go. Now, it's unclear who these unscrupulous people were and whether that includes A.L. Hudson. Andreasen said that the only way to avoid it was to copyright everything he wrote, which he couldn't afford to do, so he stopped circulating his letters and decided to write a book. Quote, The apostasy is rapidly spreading, and I must not keep silent. I have my orders. End quote. The General Conference Committee had their own orders. They removed Andreasen's name from the 1962 yearbook, which, as I've said, contained a list of church employees. It was another symbolic gesture designed to increase the pain of Andreasen remaining on this path. However, the committee made a point to not take away Andreasen's sustentation, which Figure had once threatened to do, and which sent Andreasen into a somewhat understandable fit. There was only one final effort for peace, 
when Andreasen seemed to realize that he had said what he wanted to say and maybe, maybe, agitating on it further wouldn't do anyone any good. Well, he defended his right to protest, but claimed that he recognized that there was a time you should stop protesting and just leave things in God's hand. Maybe, if he had more to say, he could just write a few people to GC. Would that be okay? Figura was excited and told Andreasen that they were now on the path to fixing things. Good, let's do that. But Figure had apparently misunderstood Andreasen again, because Andreasen wrote back saying that he was only making a proposal to start a negotiation, which Figure had, in Andreasen's mind, taken as a surrender. So it was apparently Figure's eagerness to accept Andreasen's perceived surrender that infuriated the Great Dane one last time and broke any chance at reconciliation. On December 29, 1961, Andreasen wrote to the General Conference Secretary again asking to impeach Ruben Figure. In January 1962, a day after the United States tested a nuclear bomb in Nevada, Andreasen wrote his final letter called Shooting the Watchdog. Andreasen apparently intended it to be the first in a new series of letters that would conclude at the 1962 General Conference session in San Francisco that July, the last session, by the way, to be held in San Francisco. In Shooting the Watchdog, Andreasen rehashed his old complaints, but added that he had invited the labor union to investigate the church for threatening to remove his sustentation. The fight is not finished, Andreasen told his followers, asking them to send a dollar to receive his future letters. It has just begun. In fact, the fight was finished. While no doubt Andreasen's spirit was willing to continue his crusade, his body was not. His biographer tells us that he had an ulcer, which began to hemorrhage. He was taken to the hospital, but his body was not strong enough for surgery, so they sent him home. Andreasen called for Figure, who happened to be in the area. R.R. Beats arrived too. Andreasen, his biographer, said, quote, wanted to be at peace with his brethren and with God. He wanted no animosities. The president responded in kind. Then each prayed. The bitterness was eliminated. At last, the old warrior was ready to leave the whole matter in the Lord's care. There were tears of gratitude in his eyes as the visitors left. Now I can die in peace, he told his wife. End quote. That he did. February 19th, 1962. Exactly one month after he had sent out his final essay. A few weeks later, on March 1st, the General Conference Committee returned his credentials and relisted his name in the yearbook. Epilogue. As I talk about the end of M. L. Andreasen's life, I keep thinking about the beginning of it. Like many people, Andreasen at one point took a stab at writing his memoirs. He didn't get very far, but this was his opening line. Quote, To the great disgust of my mother, and indeed the whole family, I arrived in this world on the fourth day of June, 1876. End quote. Well, I think that Andreasen meant this to be a little tongue-in-cheek, because he was born one day before a major holiday, and his birth caused his family to, to miss it. The stories he tells of his childhood reveal a boy who was somewhat ignored by his parents. He says that they seldom had family meals together. Often they would just get takeout from a restaurant, and everyone would just eat whenever they're hungry. 
His mother handed Andreasen a cigar when he was three. Drinking followed shortly thereafter. Andreasen remembers that he and his siblings were worried about their parents, felt that something was off about them. One brother ran away and was reported dead, although Andreasen met him again 60 years later. Andreasen had to watch his sister die. He lived nearly his entire life feeling that he was the only surviving child and an unwanted child at that. He would say that until he was a teenager, he and his parents were strangers. M.L. Andreasen eventually found Seventh-day Adventists, uh, people who wanted him, uh, people who respected him. He got married and had children with this new Adventist family. So why am I sharing this with you? It's not because I want to play armchair psychologist here. I mean, I, I kind of want to, but I'm going to stay in my lane. Nor am I sharing this in order to invite your sympathy or in order to excuse things Andreas and Setter did. I, I mentioned his childhood in order to highlight how this podcast usually only deals with people when they make the headlines, so to speak. Andreasen was more than his final protest. He was more than last generation theology. He was a man, not a walking theological position. I think that it's important that we understand that he was a man, a man in pain, both in his old age, but also the pain of his childhood. And he was also a man who loved his church. And his church loved him too. In the middle of April, Andreasen's widow had to get a job at the Glendale Sanitarium in order to pay off some of the medical expenses of caring for her husband. The GC formed a special committee to consider her case. I just want you to think about that. A million Adventists in the world. They formed a committee at the highest level of the church to consider her case. She was given money for the funeral and three months' salary. On top of that, the church agreed to buy her husband's library for $4,000 and to contribute another $1,000 to cover any medical expenses she incurred in his final days. A further $3,500 was given to Mrs. Andreasen over some former employment she had in the 1950s, bringing up the total probably more than, but around $7,000, which is an equivalent roughly of $65,000 today. Now, the church didn't have to give all this money. Mrs. Andreasen wasn't about to pick up her husband's pen, and there was no need to silence her. So I think it, it shows the deference church leaders felt on account of the Great Dane's many years of service. To be sure, that deference was not always felt. It was not always displayed. Damage had been done. But in the end, Andreasen's end, it was kindness that outlasted all other feelings. Others didn't enjoy the church's patience, as long as Andreasen did. A.L. Hudson, the printer, was disfellowshipped in 1961. Nor did Andreasen's protest end with his death. It would be picked up by Brinsmead and others, and the accusation that the church had compromised with the wider Christian world and was secretly trying to undermine the truth has never really gone away. In every generation, people pick up this protest on one side or the other. Grievances have accumulated. Church leaders would be under almost constant attack, and they attacked back. Few of Andreasen's heirs had deposited the decades of loyalty and service the way that he had, and the social earthquakes of the 1960s and 1970s 
would often lead to paranoia among the top men, with church leaders wanting to keep an iron grip on the throat of orthodoxy. Patience wouldn't always come easy. Figure himself wasn't always patient with Andreasen, and it couldn't have been easy to be Figure. There's no church manual on how to handle people. If you've ever been in a deep church fight, then you know how long those wounds can last. Fellow Christians can hurt you like no one else can. And I think Figure's turning point came when he realized that this protest was never going to seriously threaten the church. When George McCready Price, Ted Heppenstall, and others voluntarily got off the bench to help rein Andreasen in, it became clear that this situation was going to be under control. With his back no longer against the wall, Figure found that he could afford to be generous, which is, I think, telling. This was an argument between people who fundamentally liked and respected each other, even, I suppose, when calling for the other to be impeached. Now that leads me to a final question, a really bad question. Who won? Figure never managed to calm Andreasen down. The clock simply ran out. But Andreasen never managed to change the church, either. QOD is still around. And it turns out that he didn't have to. Andreasen was wrong on a number of particulars. He either didn't have enough information or he misinterpreted it. But the larger issue he raised was important. Is the Avenus church changing to be less than it was, less than it should be? Figure would probably have said no, though he might acknowledge some developments that he didn't like. Figure's successor, Robert H. Pearson, would probably have agreed with Andreasen's claim, though not with his protest, because what administrator wants to deal with a protest? But the truth is that Andreasen's last-generation theology continued to be popular. In fact, probably more popular as the 1970s arrived. Pearson himself would often lament various compromises he saw in Adventism, and he would spend his presidency trying to man every gun on the ship. The Adventist Review would publish a special edition in 1974, which basically argued for some of Andreasen's theology. Andreasen, in other words, is still haunting the church. His protest is still going on. Sometimes his voice comes from the General Conference offices, Sometimes it comes from some other corner of the church, but he's still floating around somewhere and sometimes everywhere. True to his word, Andreasen kept the fight on until the very end. But he did find peace, especially peace with Figure. Andreasen's wife was especially consoled that her husband and Figure had made up, and Andreasen had regretted causing any trouble and regretted that his followers had amplified his protest far beyond what he had wished. But before we go, I want to close with something the Great Dane had written, and which was to be read at his funeral. Quote, It seems fitting that on this occasion I should leave a word to my friends here assembled. God has been good to me these many years. Life has been good to me. My friends have been good to me. My family has been good to me. 
as I believe that life here is given us that we may demonstrate how we will use it. I leave my testimony that I love life, that I appreciate the privilege of having been permitted to live these many years and associate with many dear friends. Life and love are wonderful, and I have had my full share of them. I have had a taste of life and love, and I am looking forward to another life, unending, with my friends and loved ones, where there will be no partings, no sad farewells. So, dear ones, be faithful and true, even to the end. I shall rest in hope, looking forward to the day of glad reunion. I love my God. I shall soon see him. I love you that are here today. I love music. I love flowers. And I appreciate your love. Farewell then, till we meet again. End quote. Signed, M. L. Andreasen. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.